welcome to Connection Church's podcast. This message is part six in the series, An Unfulfilled Potential, The Life of King Saul. In this message, Brandon talks about finishing well, and in order to fulfill our potential, we must first decide whether we are in or out. So anyway, we're going to continue today. This is the last series or sermon in this series of, of uh, Unfulfilled Potential. And uh, if you've liked it, sorry. Some of you are like, yes, thank God. He's not going to talk about Saul anymore. But we're going to continue and finish it up today. And I want to talk to you today about finishing strong. Um, I want to talk to you about how Saul uh, failed to do this, but then I want to look at someone else in the Bible who, a couple of people who um, actually did finish well. I mean, how do we do that? How do we finish well? So that's what we want to talk about today, and we want to begin to look at that. Um, and I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to begin to wrap this up, but... But I think it is so important to realize unless we finish strong, unless we finish well, we'll never realize our full potential. So God is calling us to finish well. First Samuel chapter 31, I want to read to you verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now this is Saul. The Israelites are fighting the Philistines um, in this battle. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce from around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. Well, let's pray. God, um, we thank you for your word. God, teach us today. I, I just pray that you would begin to instill in us things that will allow us to finish well. Things, God, that we can do to ensure that when we stand before you, God, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God, that we don't run part of the way, we don't run halfway, God, but we run all the way, this great race that you've called us to. So God, today I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the anointing of your word, it would sink deep into our hearts and produce fruit, God, that will come to full maturity, and God, that you would finish in us what you have begun. Lord, we just love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are looking at Saul again, and we come to this tragic ending of his life in, in, verse, in chapter 31. And here is the man that we read about five weeks ago, six weeks ago, and we saw that had so much potential that God literally looked at and said, Saul, whatever your hand finds to do, go and do it. And we come to this place today where we look at it and we see that what Saul was destined to do, he really never did. I mean, this man's life ends with him falling on a sword. How tragic is that? That a life full of so much potential, it was full of so much life, full of so much opportunity, full of so much calling, 
so much potential destiny that he ends up dying on his own sword. It would have been one thing to go into battle and have the Philistines kill you, but for you to come into this place where you end up having to fall on your own sword is absolutely amazing when you think about the call of God on this man's life. Now, if you think about what we've been talking about, we can all find ourselves in this similar position. We can find ourselves full of potential as we are, potential laden when we come into the calling of Christ. Once we become Christians and the Holy Spirit infills us, we have so much potential and yet our end result could be the same as Saul's. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you know people who started out pretty well, but by the time they were done, it was as though their life ended falling on a sword. How many people do we know who started out in a business? The business started out well and they go for a while and the end result is that they fell on a sword. How many people do we know who have had children who had started out well But the end result was they fell on their sword as parents. How many people do we know in marriages today that started out well in love, on on fire for each other, living as, as God had called them to live, and in the end, they fell on their sword? How many churches do we know who had moments of glory and glimpses of greatness, and in the end, they fell on their sword? See, today we come and we celebrate the first anniversary of this church. And while it is great and God has done great things and God has been there through thick and thin, through times of excitement and times of doubt, we stand here today with the potential of one day falling on our sword. It depends on what we do from here. Your life and the way you finish depends on what you do from here. So we have to begin to realize this so much. So I want to read you something and it's a little lengthy, but just, just listen, because if you know much about this church, this is going to sound eerily familiar. Okay. This is a letter that we found online. Sean Fox found it online as he was just um, looking at, he actually Googled connection church to see how far down the list we were. And like after four or 500 churches, we, we were there, but he found this letter online. And I want to read it to you because it is so, uh, it's just, just eerie. This is what it says. Connection church had its held its last public service on August 30th, 2009. Five years ago, I stood in front of a peak group of people in the Lake Norman area, North Carolina, and cast a vision for a church that would reach those disconnected from God in creative new ways. We didn't want to be just another church. That sound familiar? Our community had enough churches already. Our vision was to become a new dynamic expression of the first century believers, a church that would reach those who had not darkened the doors of a church in a while or maybe ever. The mission of Connection Church was to connect disconnected people into a dynamic dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. In many ways, we saw this happen. Many people gave their lives to Christ. Many turned, returned to the church and their relationship with God after years of stagnation. People were baptized. Kids found the love of Jesus and 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 wanted to walk with him 
through their lives. Marriages were restored. Gifts were used for the kingdom. Disciples were made. I am very proud and humbled to have been part of those things. Why does this have to come to an end? There are a lot of factors I could point to. Hindsight is 2020. After all, what's crazy is our vision is 2020 to reach 2,000 people by the year 2020 with the love of God. And he says, our hindsight is 2020 after all. But there are three things primarily that have happened. One, finances. We have struggled financially for quite a while. In fact, it's probably simply by God's grace we've made it this far. We've, not done, we've done a lot with smoke and mirrors. He says the financial realities have caught up with us. You can only cut so much before you start cutting where it hurts. Attendance, while we've seen new faces practically every Sunday, we were unable to grow at a healthy clip, enough to sustain the ministry, to increase our volunteer base, and to see giving levels come to a healthy place. Number three, the vision. We are at a point where the vision for a church that will reach the unchurched is being compromised. To creatively and effectively reach the lost takes ample resources. And he says, what begins to happen is you begin to drift. Being just another nice church is simply not an option I want to consider. It was never on the table for Connection Church. Now listen to this. The relationships that Susan, the kids, and I are taking from this will last forever. Those of you who don't know my wife's name, Susan. And it says, we have been blessed by the people of Connection Church, yada, 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 yada. We approached our last meeting, not as a funeral service, but as a commissioning, saying we're sending people out. He says, I consider it one of the highest privileges of my life to have served as the lead and founding pastor of Connection Church. I am sad to see this chapter of life end. I am also extremely hopeful about the future and looking forward to what God has for us next. And then I believe he fell on his sword. I believe that that pastor had to fall on his sword. He had been given a vision. He had been given something to do, something that God had put in his heart. And there came a point in time when he realized this is not going to happen. We are celebrating one year. And yet what will it be like in five? Will we truly fulfill what God has given us to do? Will we continue to not compromise the mission? Will we begin to, to seriously reach those who, are, who seem to be unreachable? Or in five years, will we be so burnt out of trying to do this and trying to do that that we come to a place where we just finally give up and say, it's just not going to happen? Take that to your own life. What about your own life? What are, what's your life going to be like in five years? What's it been like to this point? Where are you going? What's, what's your potential? What's God called you to do? Are you going to fulfill what God has given you to do? Or is there going to come a point in your life where you just have to fall on your sword, leaving all of this potential, all these things that God called you to do on the table and not having done all that he had given you, not having done everything that your hand finds to do. And so we want to begin to look at this. See, the measure of our life is not necessarily how we start. The measure of our life is how we finish. There have been so many great men in the kingdom of God who have done great and awesome and mighty things, great uh, women of God who've done that. But you know how many of those men didn't finish well? And so forever they're remembered as, well, they had a great ministry for a time. And yet then they just began to fade away. They began to fall away. They, they fell on their sword. And it's so easy to start out. See, anybody can be a flash in the pan. Anybody can do something for a brief period of time. But the measure of your success, the measure of how well we've done is not measured in the short term. It's measured in the long term. 
It's measured by how well did we stick to it. It's not even measured by results. It's measured by obedience. It's not measured by how much you've produced. It's measured by have I done what God told me to do? Have I fulfilled what God's given me to do in this life? And today, what I want us to do is to look, I want to ask you four questions that you can begin to think about so that you can begin to, I believe, ensure you're finishing well. To begin to make sure that you're doing the things that you need to do uh, to finish well. And we've looked at Saul and we've talked about Saul. And I kind of feel like Saul's been a punching bag for the last six months. So this week, I want to take this off of Saul just a little bit. And I want to begin to look at Nehemiah. If you've ever heard of Nehemiah, I remember the first time I ever read the book of Nehemiah. I was in a Sunday school class and they said, okay, everybody go home, read the book of uh, Nehemiah. Well, I go home and I read it, but we come back to Sunday school the next week. And I remember sitting there and my father-in-law was the Sunday school teacher. And so he got a big kick out of this because he can make fun of me and make everybody laugh. But I said, well, when I was reading the book of Nehemiah, and there were about 25 people and they were like, what? Well, I was reading the book of Nehemiah. And they were like, what book of, the book of who? I was like, Nehemiah. And they were like, do you mean Nehemiah? Oh yeah, Nehemiah, that was, that was who it was. But I mean, I totally couldn't pronounce it, but it is a great book. It's kind of stuck in the middle of the Old Testament or somewhat there. And um, so I want to begin to look at this man's life. And I want to begin to look at how we can make sure that we finish well. And I want to read to you in, in Nehemiah chapter two. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's verses one through three. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And listen to this. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, let me tell you where Nehemiah, Nehemiah has been taken captive. He is in a captive land and he is there and uh, he, he has heard of the distress of the other Jews who have traveled back to, to um, Jerusalem. And so he's there and and he's hearing about all the stuff going on with the Jews and he's struggling because he's so depressed about what he's hearing. And he longs to go back and begin to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem so that they can again be a people of God, so that they can again not be a disgrace to other nations. Other nations were laughing at him. They were making fun of God. They were doing all these things. And so now... We come to a place where God has put it on Nehemiah's heart to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the walls of of the city. The walls were their protection. It was a place where they would build these huge walls. They would have big gates on the walls and they wouldn't let people in. It was a protection for them. So he wants to go back and begin to help them do this. Now, the first question I want you to look at is this. It says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? The first thing we have to begin to do is ask ourselves, are my motives good or are my motives bad? We have to begin to look at why we're doing what we're going to do. If you're going to get into something, if you're getting into a a church, if you're getting into a relationship with God, if you're getting into um, a business, if you're, you're making a move to do something major, one of the things we have to begin to do is be honest about our motives and honest about our feelings. 
How easy is it for us to have a desire to want to do something? And so we begin to take it and we begin to rationalize it. And we begin to say, well, this is why I'm doing it. But deep down inside, we know that there's an ulterior motive. And so we begin to get into something. And what I want you to hear today, and I want to read this because I want it to, I want to say it in a certain way, is that real motives motivate rationalized motives leave you stranded in a sea of regret. How many times have you made a decision where you go and you get into something and after you've been in it for a while, you realize I really didn't have the heart for this to begin with. How many times have we played the God card and said, well, God said, and so we go and begin to do something And we get into it and we realize, well, my motives weren't quite as good as I thought they were. And so then we end up in this place where we're just stranded. And the only thing we can do is begin to paddle harder and try to make it happen on our own. Or we just have to back up and go, wait a minute, I screwed up. So we get to a place where we can't continue because we realize that my motives in this thing were wrong to begin with. How many times have we seen it happen with people when they're getting married? Man, oh, it's great. This is great. And and there's a motive there that just wasn't quite as pure as what they had put on to start with. Maybe it was more of a physical attraction. Maybe it was just a situation where they thought, well, maybe this is the right thing. And we get into it. And then all of a sudden we're drifting along and we find ourselves floating in a sea of regret because we made a wrong decision. And so we've got to come to a place where we begin to realize, we begin to realize that we have to be honest with ourselves. Are my motives really pure? Or is there something selfish behind them? Is there some angle I'm trying to work? Why am I getting into this to start with? What angle am I trying? Is this where God is? Am I honoring God with this choice and this decision? Or is it just something that I am trying to do so that I can do what I want to do? I remember when uh, we were, a while back, I I was looking at some cars and and Susan needed a new car. And I was like, yeah, you know, and and gas was like, diesel was like $5 a gallon. And I was like, well, I'll just go. And and when I get her a car, I'm just going to get me a car. I'll get me a car because, you know, it'll be great. I can save on gas. And I started thinking about all these things. But really, I mean, we bullet down. I just wanted a new car. I wanted something new to play with. But see, I had all these good reasons and these good motives. And you know what happened is I bought the car and thinking, well, I'll just sell it. I got a great deal on this car. And so I'll just sell it and I'll get my money back. You know, it never quite works that way. It never turns out the way you think it's going to. And so I went, but I was able to rationalize that. I was able to make my motives seem so pure, knowing deep down at the core of who I am that I wasn't supposed to do this. But we look at our motive and we can change it. It can be so selfish. Is my motive really to bless my wife and my family or is there something else that's driving my decisions? You know, do I really need to work more to have more things or do I need to be at home with my wife and kids? We need to begin to look and be honest about our motives and what we're doing. We've got to begin to see that, um, that our right motives will drive us in the right direction, but wrong motives leave us stranded. See, this is what happened with Nehemiah. It says that he was afraid, but I said to the king, Nehemiah was motivated by something bigger than he was. He was motivated by, by a desire to see people's lives touched and people's lives changed. And it wasn't something that, that he just made up. There was a sincere motive. And he's 
frightened. He's scared. He was the cupbearer for this king. If he made him mad, he'd just soon chop his head off as look at him. And yet there was something, there was a motivation there that thrust Nehemiah forward as he was talking to the king. Look here at verse uh, four, four through eight. It says, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king the queen, with the queen sitting by, beside him asked, him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct while I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timbers to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now I want you to put yourself here. You're, you're about to face a king and, and this guy could literally just say, kill him. He could literally just say, kill him right now, kill him. And yet he's standing there and he walks in. The king realizes that his countenance has changed. He realizes something's going on. And so he asks Nehemiah, he says, what is it you want? And then he goes and he says, why is your face so sad? Why are all these things going on? And then there's this moment in time. I know it had to have seemed like an eternity for Nehemiah. Can you picture this? He's standing there and the thing, the opportunity is there. And he's looking at the king and he says, oh. And it literally says, and he prayed to God. Can you just imagine what was going through his mind? What was going through his heart as he's standing there before the king? And the king says, what is it you want? What's wrong with you? What's going on? And Nehemiah could have said, oh, king, I, I just don't feel real well today. Or, oh, king, you know, well, I, you know, um, uh, so-and-so said something hurt my feelings. You know, something like that. But instead, he says that I pray to God. And then he just jumps in. And he says, if it pleases you, king, let me go back. And not only let me go back, and then he keeps going. I mean, I would have been like, let me go back. If he said, cool, I'm like, all right, cool. But he's like, no, man, give me some people to go with me. Give me the, the wood. Give me the things that I need to be able to finish this project. And it's almost like this boldness began to rise up in Nehemiah. But there came a point in that moment, in that decision, where Nehemiah had to decide, am I in or am I out? And when we come face to face with decisions in our life, when we come to a place in our lives where we're going to go into something that is life-changing, potentially life-changing, when we're coming into a relationship with God that should be life-changing, when we come into a church to become a part of a body, we've got to ask ourselves the same question, am I in or am I out? One of the greatest dangers, one of the hardest things for Christianity today is the number of people who ride the fence. And I'm telling you today, it is better for the church for you to get on or get off, to get in or to get out. Because we need to be moving with one mind. We need to be moving with one heart. You know, it's such an important thing that Jesus even said. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I mean, come on, lukewarm really changes nothing. 
It really does nothing. And Jesus says, it nauseates me. It makes me sick. And if we're ever going to fulfill our potential, if we're going to finish what God has given us to do, what he started in us, we've got to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? See, when you come to this place where with, with the church and with getting into a vision, see, when you come to a church, you don't come to the building, you come to the people. And we've heard that. But one of the things I've realized is, is you're also coming to a vision. Each church, God has given a vision, hopefully, to each church to carry out. So when you come to the church, you're not just coming to the building and and not even just to the people. You're coming to a vision that God has given to someone and that people are getting to be a part of. But the question you've got to ask yourself is, am I in or am I out? of this. Now I understand when you first come and you you're filling it out and you're watching, but some of us need to make a choice. Some of us need to decide, am I in or am I, is this where God is planting me to grow or am I just playing the game? Some of us need to look at our relationship with Jesus Christ and we need to decide, am I in or am I out or am I just playing a game? Some of us need to begin to realize that the most dangerous place we could be is thinking we're one thing and we're actually something else. See, the good thing about hanging out with sinners, with people who are just raunchy, nasty old sinners, cussing, you know, everything, so that you just know, you know, I mean, you just know, is that they know that. It's like refreshing. It's refreshing sometimes just to be around people who just know, man, if I die, I'll bust the gates of hell wide open. Man, there's no pretense. There's no, there's no, they just know because at least they're not playing a game. At least we know where they are. But so many times in church today, we just play this game where, where we're not in, we're not out. We're just kind of trying to do just enough. Remember Saul did the same thing. He wanted to look just good enough that the people thought he was religious. And we don't want to be that way. We want to be either in or out. And I encourage you today to get in. How about in marriages, with families, with all these different things, we get into these places where we haven't really made a decision. Am I in or am I out? In my marriage, when things come up and it gets rocky, am I just going to go and desert it just like like everybody else has, or am I going to stick with it? Am I going to stay with it? Am I, am I in this for the long haul? Or is it something that I'm just going to let go? I mean, come on, everybody else does it, right? I mean, it's commonplace today. So am I going to be in it or am I going to be out of it? And see, it's so important when we come in here that this is our mindset that I am in because If you've been here very long, I mean, listen, there's going to be decisions that are made that are not going to please you, that are not going to make you happy. But when you are in the vision, we're able to get over those things. Listen, the things that happen, sometimes everybody doesn't, don't please, they don't please me. Not everybody, believe it or not, does everything I want them to do. I know that's kind of a shock, but they don't. But you know, when we know we're in this together, we get through it. See, one of the things that God dropped in my heart last night, see, last night was an interesting night because my wife and and, and my my sister-in-law, Nancy, who's always wanted me to use her in a sermon. So Nancy, this is is your opportunity. Um, But I get a call last night or yesterday evening at 5.30. And I'm like, you know, 
Uh, Susan's on the other line. She's like, hey, and this is never good because Susan likes to use my mom to break news to me gently so that by the time I talk to her, I'm not upset about it. And so she says, have you talked to your mom about um, what's going on? I'm like, no, what's going on? She said, well, I bought some stuff in Savannah and we can't get it in Nancy's car. And this is like at right, almost six o'clock last night. And so I said, well, what, what, how does this involve me? And she says, you need to come to Savannah or send your mom. I'm like, yeah, right. I'm not sending mom to Savannah in in the middle of the night. And so she says, I need you to come and pick this stuff up. I get down there and I had to go to Toys R Us. I get down there. I've never seen a a Suburra Tahoe with so much stuff in it in all my life. And you know, you would think that while you're shopping, there would be this moment where you would think, can I get this stuff home? And I, I'm going to pay for this later, so I hope you enjoy that little laugh. But I'm thinking, what, at what point did it not dawn that we can't get this home? And so Susan says, but we're going to save $50 if we get it now. Well, I drive a 2003 2500 diesel Um, that is a heavy-duty truck, and as I'm riding to Savannah, it hits me, and all I could do is chuckle. I will burn up the gas that that it would take for the $50 to mean absolutely anything. And so I go down, and I have to go down there, and I have to begin to pick it up. So not all the time does things go the way that I would like for it to go. My plan yesterday was not to go to Savannah, pick up stuff and turn around and come back, but it happened. And it happens the same way in the church. Not all the time uh, does it happen where everything goes the way that I want it to. That when I ask somebody to do something, it happens uh, exactly the way that I would want it to happen. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about this last night and I really felt that God put on my heart, Brandon, you are called to be their leader, not somebody who just pleases them. You are called not to to be um, pleasing all, you're called to lead. And see, there's these times when things don't go exactly the way we want them to. There are times when Susan and I butt heads because you know how they talk about the five love languages and all that sappy stuff those guys don't like to hear about? Well, they, we were talking about, is it like affection? Is it this? Is it that? And I'm like, yeah, you know? And then I'm like, you know what? You know what my love language is? Just do what you tell me you're going to do. You know, then I feel loved. That's kind of my thing. Just do what you say. But there's times when it doesn't happen. There are going to be times that I make decisions that you don't like. But listen, I'm not called to please everybody. I'm called to lead you. And that's what I want to do is lead us to where God is trying to take us. And when we're a part of something that's bigger than us, we're bought into a vision that we are in where we're not on the fence. Then when things happen that don't necessarily please us, we're able to get over it because we know we're a part of something bigger. Amen. Amen. Then look over in Nehemiah. chapter 11, I I really, I feel strongly that if you will take that, if you will think about different things in your life, am I in or am I out? I really believe it will help you. I talked with a couple this week who are making some big decisions in their life and they, they were just torn. They're like, we don't know. We feel led to do this. We feel like we were supposed to do that, but now we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And there was all these circumstances that surrounded. And I said, you know what will clear this up for you 100%. And they said, what? I said, you decide, am I in 
or am I out? Because then the circumstances don't matter as much. I know that I'm in this, so let's stick it out and let's gut it out. In 2, uh, verse 11, it says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And it says, by night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well. And it goes through all the different places along this wall that Nehemiah went and looked. He's out surveying all the damage and what it's going to take to begin to rebuild this wall. And in verse 17, it says, then I said to them, he hadn't told anybody about what's going on. And he says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what God had said to me. Now, this is cool because you think about Nehemiah going out. He hasn't told a soul about what God put in his heart to go do, except for the king. He hasn't told the people who were in Jerusalem what he's wanting to do. And he goes out by night and he only takes a handful of people and he's riding along this wall and he's looking at all the damage and he's looking at all the things. And then he comes to a point where he has to decide again. And I believe that what he was doing, what Nehemiah was doing in this situation is he was counting the cost of what it would take to finish the wall. And that's one of the things when we begin to look at our life, when we begin to start something new, have I counted the cost of what it takes to complete what God has given me to do? Have I counted the cost? I mean, Nehemiah is there. He's riding along. He's looking at all the damage. And I truly believe that he was assessing what it was going to take. Is this even something that I want to begin? But so many times we jump into things. We get into relationships. We get into all these different things. We start things that we know will never, because we haven't taken the time to count the cost. I want to read to you real quick, Luke 14, 28 through 30, it says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. I mean, come on, how, how many times have we done these kind of things? How many times have we began something that we didn't finish? I want to tell you, and this is just, this is something I really, like you're going to hear, I've probably told five people this my entire life, but the only real regret I have in my life was when we got, no, no, I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) The only real regret I have in my life happened when I was in college. See, I went to play baseball at Georgia Southern. And I played for three years. Three years, I was a part of the Georgia Southern baseball team. But I got to the end of three years, and this is a funny story. Coach Stallings, I don't know, you may have heard me say this. I don't think I've told this. But Coach Stallings was my baseball coach. He was several years ago. We're there. And um, I would played really well. I had good fall practice. I had a good spring practice. It was two weeks before I got in a game. I didn't have a horrible game. I didn't have a great game. But and then it was two more weeks before I got in another game. But I played really well. When I was getting it, I was doing these. I was playing pretty well. And so then I go and, and I, I'm like, why am I not getting to play? I was playing like every now and then. And I was like, I, I want to find out. I want to figure this out. So I go and I can still see Coach Stallings sitting. If you know Skip, you know that he is just direct to the point. Your feelings matter nothing. And so he's sitting there on the top shelf of, of the dugout where, where he always sat. And after practice, I walk up to him and I said, Skip, I got to ask you a question. And since he didn't know my name, he said, okay, big guy, what is it? 
That's what he called all of us. He called us all big guy. It was just big guy. And so, you know, he called us our number when our back was to him and he could actually see it, you know. And so he says, big guy, what is it? I said, Skip, I was just wondering, I, you know, I've been playing pretty well. I've, I've had good practices. What does it take for me to get a chance to play every day? And he looks me dead in the eyes and he says, big guy, I think you're over-evaluating your talent and ability. And I was like, could you explain that to me? <laughs> no, I mean, there was no, there was no room for interpretation with that. It was pretty much, you're not as good as you think you are. And so I knew right there that my baseball career was pretty much all it was going to be. And so I finished out that season, but at the end I went and I sat down with Skip and I said, Skip, it's time for me to hang it up. I, I just, I don't think I need to keep going. And he's like, well, big guy. He's always a big guy. Big guy, we're going to miss you. And uh, you're a great team player. All right, see you. And it was like, well, you hug maybe, you know? <laughs> okay, we have an embrace. Uh, but it was just, it was done just like that. And so I left. And I want to tell you that for me, that one thing, that one decision, it still haunts me to this day. I mean, listen, there are times when I will dream about going back and finishing my last two years of baseball. But it's one of those things that, that I got into and I just didn't finish. The only thing really in my life that I just, I didn't finish. I felt like I left maybe before it was time. And I guarantee you some of you have those same type of, of things in your life that you remember, decisions that you made that are just sort of regrets, things that you've done that you say, if I could just go back to that moment and that time, it would be great. And so as we start getting into this, we have to look and, and we have to look and say, is there enough in the tank to finish? Is there enough? Have I counted the cost of what it's going to take to complete what I'm starting? Because most of the time we don't factor it in. So many times we are so excited about starting, we don't think about the fact that we've got to keep going. When, uh, this, is, this is the last thing I want to I tell you today, and then we'll get going. We'll go eat. Um, can I... Stop with the ice for just a minute. Yeah. Sorry. It's a little distraction there. It's kind of part of having a fellowship, this little fellowship area right next to the sanctuary. But in 2, 1 and 2, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. He said, I had not been sad in his presence before. See, there was something about Nehemiah that he had done well up to the point of this big opportunity. He had done things well up until the point of going before the king, so much so that the king could recognize when something wasn't right. See, the last question I want you to ask yourself is, am I making decisions today that will enable me to finish tomorrow? Am I doing things today that are going to allow me to finish the way I want to finish tomorrow? Because all of our life is this series. It is a beginning. It is life and it is finishing. See, Jesus' life, we have this same pattern. We see the beginning we know a good bit about that. We see the life, which we don't know as much about, but we see the ministry towards the end. And then we see the ending, the finish of Jesus's life. And the thing that we get to see about this is that Jesus finished well. Even when he was on the cross, he had been perfectly obedient. 
We look at it and people looked at it and said, wow, this guy has died. He is, but in God's sight, he had been perfectly obedient. He had done what God had called him to do. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, was able to look at down at everybody standing there and say, it is finished. He had done life well. And so we too have the same opportunity, but we've got to realize that the decisions we're making today are laying a foundation for the things we'll build on tomorrow and how we're going to finish. And so we've got to realize that our entire life is made up of these little series of these beginnings, these, these living, these living times, these medium, uh, middle times, and then the finish. And how are we going to do that? How, how is life going to happen? Are we making decisions today that would make those things end up the way we want to? We can't just make any decision today that we want to make and expect life to end up the way we want it to tomorrow. We have to realize that this series of beginning, living, and finishing are all happening inside our lives. It's going on every day. Every day is a beginning and a, li- a life to live and then a finish. Are we doing each little thing that will enable us to finish well? Are we just going through life, doing it the way we want to do it and hoping that things end up the way we want them to end up? See, Nehemiah lived his life in such a way that he set himself up to finish well. And we've been called to do the same thing. The problem is this. The problem is that some of us sit here today having made decisions that have already affected our life. Some of us sit here today not having had great beginnings. As kids, we may not have had parents who invested in our lives. And so we look at how we began and we begin to think, well, what hope is there for me? Or maybe we've made one decision in our life that cost us dearly. I mean, mine was, was really trite, you know, with the baseball. It's really trite compared to some of the decisions some of you have made that has cost you dearly. And you look at it now and you say, how will I ever be able to make this right? I mean, is it, is it over? Should I just go ahead and follow my sword? I mean, is it just time to end it? Or is there hope? And then we come to the place of realizing That Jesus, that God, he is the God of new beginnings. That he is the one who gives us the ability to start over. When we made choices, we've made decisions that are not good. We've planted seeds in our lives that we just pray to God, I don't see the fruit comes from this. And yet today we can come to a place of having a new beginning in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 17 says that he who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come so that Jesus is able to take the crap of our lives and somehow begin to work it, to lay a foundation, as he said the wise builder did, to lay a foundation that can be built on and that our lives can begin to be altered, begin to be changed so much so that in a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, we look back at where we were and we begin to say, how did God ever do what he's done in my life? So that in Christ, the opportunity is there. The chance is there for us to come to a place of a new beginning. Maybe you had parents that were just sorry as they could be. 
Maybe they didn't love you the way you needed to be loved. For so many of us, it is hard to recognize the love of our heavenly father because we had no model, not even close to the love that he has given us displayed in our lives by any man. Some women have such a hard time allowing a, 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 man, a man to love them, allowing themselves to love a man simply because of how men have treated them. And then we take those feelings and we begin to put them on God and we say, God, certainly you couldn't love me the way this book says. And we just give up and we fall on our sword and we never realize what all God has for us. Now, some of us have just made decisions that have, taking us off track. But today we can make a decision that gets us back going, that gets us on a foundation that God can build, that he can lay and begin to build. And so that we get to the end of our lives and we finished well. We've been obedient to God and God has reestablished. Listen, he is a, a, a redeemer. He is a restorer. And so today we can come to a place of knowing that God is able to rebuild from even the biggest mess we could have made. It doesn't mean that everything, when you walk out of these doors, are going to be hunky-dory. But I do believe you can walk out of these doors today knowing that God can and will reestablish you, restore you, and begin to build a life on a sure foundation, the foundation of Christ. Amen.